0: Gary, Indiana. It's about 30 miles from downtown Chicago, and besides being the birthplace of the Jackson Five, it's known as a city that's fallen on rough times. The steel mills there closed in the late 70s and early 80s. Crime spiked. The local economy tanked. Gary, by the way, is overwhelmingly black, about 85%. That's where Ellis de Havilland was from. He was a musician who made dance music, acid house to be precise. Around 1989, he started making music using the equipment in his church. So in 2013, a dance music label in the Netherlands called Bunker Records released de Havilland's heretofore undiscovered music on vinyl. The record was called Born Out of Cheapness and Frustration, Volume 1. Dance music magazines picked up de Havilland's story, which was provided by the label. The write-up from Resident Advisor, which is one of the leading publications of electronic music, said this.
1: Living with rough family conditions and having flunked out of high school, de Havilland formed a regular Friday afternoon habit starting in 1989 of producing Acid House on gear at his church, but died in 1991 at age 23 due to a heroin overdose. He never played live, and his music was never released on any label. Apparently, his tapes were found only relatively recently, having been bought at a police auction in Gary.
0: By the way, all the excerpts from written materials in this episode were voiced by NPR Staffords. So anyway, that's a gripping story, right? The problem with that is, as a writer named Ezra Marcus pointed out in Thump magazine last fall, none of that is real. None of it. Ellis de Havilland never OD'd on heroin. He wasn't from Gary, Indiana. There is no person named Ellis de Havilland. He was a fictional persona created for a white DJ from England named Nigel Rogers. That whole dark biography was concocted by Guy Tavares, the head of the Bunker Records label. This is the Code Switch Podcast. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen is on assignment this week. In this episode, we're looking at the history of dance music, its roots in Black America, and the very messy ways that race gets remixed in that music scene. So when I first heard the story of the non-existent Elis Haviland, Havilland, I thought what many of you are probably thinking. Here's a poor dude. He's from Gary, Indiana. He's making secular music at his church. I mean, come on. Whoever came up with this story is probably trying to conjure the image of a Black dude. So... We reached out to Nigel Rogers, the real dude behind the Ellis de Havilland pseudonym. And Rogers emailed us and he said that Ellis de Havilland was just a play on LSD. Get it? Ellis de Havilland. LSD. Acid, basically. And he said that race had nothing to do with the Ellis de
2: Havilland backstory. The music would have been the same regardless of whether Guy had created a backstory or not. He went on. If anything, it's about anonymity of artists and running circles around idiots in the media who jump on the latest trends. He went on further. I understand Code Switch at NPR relates to race and identity, so you'll forgive me for thinking that you have an agenda which lies outside of creativity and will most likely be perpetuating a non-story which has been made out to be simply about race.
0: So we're actually going to talk to the man who came up with this fictional Ellis de Havilland story after the break, but and I know this sounds crazy. This story is not the only example of white dance music producers creating fictional alter egos that read as being brown people. We reached out to a number of European DJs who have created similar alter egos like this. Most of them did not respond. And as you'll hear, this isn't the only ways in which black experiences are co-opted in contemporary dance music.
3: These things inside my soul, they make me lose control. It goes on and on.
2: Just clap it to the beat. Because Jesse makes it's need.
0: I'm just going to cop to my ignorance here as someone who is not a dance music head. I didn't know the history of house and techno music. These two genres that were forged in gay, black, and Latino clubs in New York City and Detroit and Chicago in the early 1980s. Then I thought, and I know I'm not alone here, y'all, that dance music was basically white people music. Think of European techno, Daft Punk, Tiesto, some EDM DJ with turntables on a big festival stage with all the lights and everything. So a story like Alistair Havilland's, a fake person who was invented by a white DJ to make his music seem like it was from the streets of the Midwest, regardless of what the rationale is there, that comes across kind of like blackface. All right, if you're like me, and you're not a dance music head, you probably need the 101. Like, seriously, like, what is house music?
3: Well, house music, first of all, the term comes from the warehouse.
0: That's Ron Trent, and y'all should know he's kind of a big deal.
3: I guess you would say a uh, producer of uh, many uh, soundtracks, life soundtracks. Uh, produce all different types of music, uh, listen to all different types of music, collect all different types of music, and I study culture and have been doing that for a very long time. Well, you know, since my uh,
0: early years. You're being modest, though, man. you you like, you help pioneer. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. You down <laughs> for another <little> bit. <laughs>
0: So Ron Trent is being modest. His label, Prescription Records, is one of the most respected dance music labels, period, as I learned. He's released dozens of records over his very long career and is often credited as being a pioneer of the deep house subgenre. And Ron Trent's story is rooted in Chicago, which is home of the warehouse, the place he just mentioned. That club began in the late 1970s, where the legendary DJ Frankie Knuckles played. Knuckles is often referred to as the godfather of house music. I tried to get Trent, who was joined by his manager Rob McKay in the studio, to give me a strict definition of house.
3: It it's, see, it gets kind of tricky. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, it's very, people have this, you know, very formulaic, you know, oh, it you know has to have a four-and-a-four four beat. It's got to have some screaming diva vocals. It's yeah. got to have a hi-hat. To go. It's, and that's, it's none of that. It's none of that. And it's all of that. It's, right. <laughs> it's all that and none of that at the same time. You know what I mean? A driving rhythm. It's music you can really dance to. Okay. so You know what the, I'm saying? That's like, just the, mm, 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 right? Is it like that fast? Th- or? Th- there's that. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes it might be a shuffle. You know, it might be, you know, dun, dun, sh- you know it, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's kind of more like a feeling. It sounds like he's being squirrely there, but this is what
0: I learned. For the people who really bang with house music, that feeling he's talking about is more essential to house music than time signatures or whatever instruments might be playing. Househeads will talk your ears off about moments of transcendence on the dance floors, and we're going to get to all that. But for right now, let's walk through some of the basic components of what makes a house music song. First up is that four-on-the-floor beat he was talking about. That's a bass drum on every beat of the measure, and you can actually hear a lot of that kind of beat in popular music right now, even if it's not on a house song. House is usually made with electronic drums. The hi-hat helps shape the groove. Now in house, there's often live instrumentation. Or samples of live instruments, vocals, bassline. We
3: gotta rock this party. We gotta house this party. We gotta jack this party. We gotta rock this party.
0: It's rooted in soul, and disco, and R&B, black music.
3: You ain't hip to the jack.
0: So that music was king at the warehouse, which as Ron Trent told me, is where the genre got his name. The warehouse began as a members-only club for gay black men. Frankie Knuckles was out and gay, and he played records, often obscure, unheard records, for the queer black folks who came to hear him spin. For them, that dance floor was an
3: escape. You need, you know, something to keep you alive, keep you going, and this music was a revival type of music. And, it, uh, you know, clubs were refuge you know, the loft and, and, and the Paradise Garage and where are these places were like places where people could go really kind of to stay alive. You know, yeah, yeah. you got stress of life and you got everybody telling you that you don't fit in or, you know, now you come and find a family on the dance floor.
0: That family grew from being just queer black men to include queer Latinos, some white folks, artists, musicians, just marginalized members of society from all sorts of different backgrounds. Trent says that that family grew with a spirit of inclusivity, this idea
3: of the universal dance floor. There was no, you know, like segregation, like we don't want you up in here. <laughs> you know, it's none of that. It's like if you in the spirit and you're into this, then you need to be here. Ron Trent said that
0: for a lot of people in the scene, the warehouse and clubs like it gave them a communal experience, just
3: like going to church. It's a spiritual experience, you know, and sometimes that sounds corny. It's like, oh yeah, it's
1: spiritual, it,
3: but it really is. Why? Because you have a gathering of people, you have movement. It's like a, 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 the body kind of carrying out prayer in its own way. You know, it's real. it's ritualistic. In the 1980s,
0: different versions of these rituals were popping up in cities all over the country. At roughly the same time that House was taking off in Chicago, another sound was bubbling up just a few hours away in Detroit.
3: Techno being more rooted in electronic-oriented music, more what we, as, as I know it, to be uh, krautrock rock-type um, artists. Krautrock being like craft work. In Belleville, a suburb of the Motor
0: City, Three artists named Kevin Saunderson, Juan Atkins, and Derek May were listening to a lot of craft work. And the music they were making is what came to be called techno. They were later nicknamed the Belleville 3. Other black musicians followed. Jeff Mills, Carl Craig, Underground Resistance. While the artists who eventually launched techno and house music into the world were black and definitely took inspiration from black music, Ron Trent says these were sounds born of a mix of influences. He says you could have heard Take 5 on the dance floor, Dave Brubeck's Take 5, followed by Aretha Franklin, or Iggy Pop even.
3: We're talking about music that wasn't necessarily accessible either. So some stuff was like you had never heard this before, ever. Ever. Mm. It's like it just arrived out of outer space, and you were experiencing this song— you know, whether it be on the table or on the dance floor for the, you know, it's like, oh, my God. So you felt like you were part of something special. Mm-hmm. And then, you you know, it did. You might never hear it. And some stuff you might never, some some stuff we still talk about to this day because we ain't never heard it again. <laughs> <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're like, did you hit it? Do you know about that record that you play? You know, yeah, yeah. and, and you know, oh, yeah, I was there. I was there when I heard that, and, and, and it went like this, and, and, you know, and, oh, my God, you know. What is that song? I don't know what that song is. <laughs> Even funnier, you can be at the party and hear the song. And hear it differently. But, and hear it in a particular way. Yeah. Now, this is at a time when you could go buy records. So you go buy the record, and you go home and play it, and you're like, this ain't the thing It the It sound That's not the record.
0: After the break, we learned how far the sound traveled from the warehouse, literally and figuratively, All the way to European producers making up fake stories about fake black people.
2: Records from Chicago and records from Detroit come to England. And England went hard for it.
0: We'll hear about that in the story of Marquise Hawks, real name Mark Hawkins, and Abdullah Rashim, real name Anthony Linnell, and Arto Mwambe, real names Christian Beiswanger and Philip Lauer. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Delta Airlines, who wants to make your travel experience informed, connected, and seamless. With the Fly Delta app, you'll always be able to locate your bags. The app has real-time bag tracking with RFID, giving you peace of mind in your hand. Download the Fly Delta app now.
2: Hey there, I'm Hannah Rosen, and I wanted to let you know that Invisibilia is back on June 1st. This season, we're asking the question, how is it that two people can look at the exact same thing and see something completely different? You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.
0: And we are back. So before the break, we were talking about how house and techno spring up in Chicago and Detroit in the 1980s. But it did not take long for that music to explode across the pond.
2: When the Summer of Love in Acid House happened, it was the summer of 1988. And it coincides with a moment where records from Chicago and records from Detroit come to England. And England went hard for it.
0: That's Peter Orlov. He's a contributing editor for NPR Music. He writes about dance music. Acid House, by the way, is a subgenre of dance music. Specific to a type of synthesizer, Acid House was also born in Chicago.
2: Simultaneously, Germany, which also had its own electronic music dance scene already. In 1989, an event called Love Parade was instigated in Berlin. And then the wall falls, and then East Berlin gets opened up, and an enormous amount of people who are already making this kind of music start opening up clubs, and they start inviting the artists that they like from Chicago and Detroit to perform there. When I say uh, artists from Chicago and Detroit, I'm talking about 97%. African-Americans. And a symbiotic relationship builds particularly between the city of Detroit and the city of Berlin. These are not cities that you would like think of as sister cities. Sure. Except the 20th century wasn't kind to either one of them by 1989. Very good point. Yeah. You know, and we're talking about East Berlin. So you have a whole bunch of people in East Berlin opening themselves up to a unified city for the first time in their lives, particularly young people. You have an economic disparity between those two sections, one side of the wall and the other side of the wall. And then you have bad weather and mechanical engineering with the Germans being very good at electronics uh, and car building. And, oh, people from Detroit are too. And all of them decide to start making music together. Um, some of the Germans went to Detroit, some of the Detroit guys came back to Germany, and the sound of Berlin techno is Berlin sound, but it's heavily, heavily influenced by the sound of Detroit. So this is, this is the good side of this conversation. The other side of this conversation
0: is something that happens over and over in art and music. Styles rooted in marginalized communities find legitimacy, and importantly, money— In the mainstream, once they're taken up by white artists, think Elvis Presley and Big Mama Thornton, think Led Zeppelin and Willie Dixon. You know, you get the point. Ron Trent... The Chicago house producer we spoke to earlier told us a number of stories of white artists that he knew who established their cred through associations with black artists and then later left those people out of their stories. We asked him if he wanted to name names, but, you know, he wasn't biting. But he did say that this is nothing new to him and his house music peers and that it's still happening today in a bunch of different ways. Here's Peter Orlov again.
2: So there's this uh, Dutch progressive house slash trans DJ named Armin van Buren. He's huge. He just announced last week a party in Ibiza this summer. And the party is called UR. UR stands for Underground Resistance, which is a collective from Detroit founded by Mike Banks and Jeff Mills and Robert Hood, among other people, who were the very people from Detroit who came to Berlin in 1990 and 1991 and formulated the techno sound. And so um Armin Van Buren decided to call a party UR and essentially use their logo. The response was almost uniformly, what are you doing? Just kind of like this is theft. Peter shared with me some other
0: examples of white people using fictional black personas when naming their dance music projects. There's this dude named Marquise Hawks who put out a record in twenty twelve called Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green which, of course, is the notorious housing projects in Chicago that were torn down just a few years ago. Marquise Hawk's real name is Mark Hawkins. He's a white dude who grew up in the suburbs of London. There was the producer named Abdullah Rashim, who is, in fact, Anthony Linnell from Sweden. There's Arto Mwambe, who was supposedly a young producer from Burkina Faso, but is actually two white dudes, two white dudes from Frankfurt, Germany. Peter says in most cases, the artists fess up about creating that fictional persona when they're called out, either on social media or by journalists. But often they're not even hiding it, which seems to have been the case with Ellis de Havilland, the fake dude from Gary, Indiana. But Peter says producers rarely cop to the racial jankiness embedded in these stories that they're telling. And the idea of the universal dance floor becomes a way to justify those choices. In the case of Armin Van Buren, he denies any connection to Detroit's UR, that's Underground Resistance, the groundbreaking black DJ collective. Here's Peter again.
2: Armin Van Buren said, well, it's actually not influenced by underground resistance. It's my interest in universal religion. That is convenient. It's always convenient, right? It's another notion of universality, that gets invoked a lot of like, well, this this stopped being their culture a long time ago. You know, now it's everybody's culture because it dovetails very nicely with the notion of the universal dance floor. At its best, the universal dance floor does represent everybody. But if you go to that universal dance floor not thinking that that universal dance floor was created as a safe haven for a crowd that included black, brown, white, Asian, young, old, gay, straight, who were trying to escape gay bashing, racism, that this place was created as the Saturday night church to be safe from a lot of the ills of society that were hitting them because of their identities. If you don't understand that, then the whole universality of the dance floor falls apart. We've heard all of this
0: before. Think jazz as American music, not black music. Think yoga as an American practice, not an Indian one. The list is long here. Unless you think that's an overstatement, let me read to you an email forwarded to us by Guy Tavares, who is credited with coming up with that Ellis de Havilland backstory from the top. He says, quote, The cultural appropriation concept sounds absolutely ludicrous to me. Pure culture, like pure race, is simply put, nothing but old hat Nazi crap. So we called Guy up on the phone in the Netherlands.
1: I'm Guy Tavares. I'm the head of Bunker Records.
0: So Guy Tavares is self-described as a, quote, sometimes homeless hustler, dope addict, university student, acid speed freak, psychotic, and currently a hermit. He also says he's a mix of Angolan, Portuguese, Indonesian, Jewish, and Germanic. And he says he experienced racism in his own life. So... You've created fictional backstories for artists on your label in the past?
1: Yes, all the time, from day one, for myself and other artists.
0: And what's the rationale there?
1: Well, uh, music is storytelling. This is what people have forgotten. It's a story. Like in a a film, it's a moving picture.
0: For who? I mean, are are people on the dance floor?
1: I I do not release music for dance floors. I release music for people who listen to music. I mean, you can dance to it, but that's not the point. You see, dance floor is entertainment. I'm not entertainment.
0: So when you make up a backstory like the one for Elsa Haviland, Yes. That backstory, to me, read like you were clearly going for conjuring up the image of a black man.
1: It, it, it depends, it depends. I mean, you're saying it's a black man. Did I say black? How can a man not be of any color in the first place? It shows the tragedy of certain Afro-Americans But then again, also the tragedy of other people.
0: But it seems like if you were referencing, you know, Harlem, right? Or if you were referencing, you know, a place that is commonly associated with black people, um, like a city like Gary, Indiana, which is 85% black.
1: Yes, but still 15% non-black. And I didn't mention black. I've been there, you know? It's a tragic place. The story is a tragedy. And it can happen to anyone. It's still a tragedy.
0: It's a tragedy, sure, but it's also fictional.
1: Yes, but come on. Music is fiction. I'm a storyteller. It's a story. A story about a tragic person. What's the problem? You see, I've been a victim of, of racism too. I am an immigrant. Yes? I'm mixed-blooded. But then again, I do not blame white people in general for picking out of me on the street now with a kid. They can't help it either. They're stupid. You know? As most people are stupid from any race because racism is actually... Although the race does not exist, the reality of racism does. And, it's, and the best way to fight it is the stereotypes. I love stereotypes because they are the best way to prove that they are stupid.
0: So when you were conjuring up the story, the backstory for Alistair Haviland, you didn't imagine him as a person with a race?
1: I imagine that some people, you know, could see that aspect. I just assumed that the fans of Bunker Records are smart enough see that that's just one layer I will never sell any more records by playing, playing the ghetto boy thing it, it, it really doesn't matter you know it, it doesn't give me any more credit or coolness I still sell uh, 300 records so I cannot believe in any more than 300 people will know about it and by now after 25 years I assume mm-hmm. these 300 people are sort of the same and they know me by now so I, wouldn't, I wasn't worried about that at all do you know what Alice Heaven means? It's an aeroplane from England from the Second World War. I knew this. Nigel Rogers is a British boy.
0: What would be the clue to to the writer at some magazine who was writing up a pending release of an album that this was fiction, that it wasn't true? Like, how would a writer know that?
1: A writer. Uh, well, first of all, I do not do promotion. Really, uh, I do expect it to be picked up by people like that. If it happens, I'm very, I'm very surprised.
0: Do you worry that when you put these backstories out, that people will take them as literal, right? I mean, what is your responsibility there?
1: People should have seen it was fake. If they didn't, well, I'm afraid they are racist themselves. They are projecting their own fear and images.
0: What might you say to a black producer from Chicago or Detroit who took offense by this fake Ellis de Havilland story?
1: What would I say? I would show him the way, the best way to destroy stereotypes that affect him is stereotype. You see, I'm just as well a victim of stereotype as he is. And I know, I learned how to overcome it by using the stereotype as the strongest weapon. Fight fire with fire.
0: But the thing is, people didn't think it was fake. People were offended. And Peter Orloff said, whether it's about marketing or not, this kind of DJ blackface is still playing with some well-worn ideas about black authenticity.
2: I think it's to some degree a marketing ploy and built on a kind of authenticity. You know, commonly media portrayed authentic experience. You know, that raw musicianship that is at the heart of so much mythology. Let's just take a moment to appreciate the irony of using a made-up backstory
0: to market authenticity and realness. But also a big consequence of these made-up stories like Elis de Havilland's, is that they warp history. Ron Trent says they actually flatten the realities of a lot of the people who pioneered this kind of music. People, they
3: don't talk about it because they don't know about it. But they know about, you know, house music and the dirty house and funky house and dirty techno. And there's always this kind of demonstrative, like, we're gonna put dirty because it's from the ghetto. It's from the... It's more from the black people, and they do their ghetto thing, and they're so genius, and they're, you know, they're filth. What the hell? Are you? <laughs> what? Yeah, it's like, what's it?
0: And 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 I have to say it, bro, because I see it all the time. Ron Trent told us that he feels an obligation to speak out against this theft of his culture, this culture he helped build. But he says that when people have tried to point out this kind of co-opting in the past, very rarely have there been any real consequences. But just last week. The controversy over Armin Van Buren's use of the UR logo was resolved, sort of, when he and his team decided to take that logo off of all their flyers and party materials. Gone is that signage that looks suspiciously like that of the underground resistance symbol. Van Buren did say, though, his parties will still be named Universal Religion. Alright, since we had Ron Trent on this episode, an actual DJ whose actual day job, or night job I guess, is to play songs that give people life, we asked him to pick a song that's giving him life right now. His choice was Lee Ritenour, Countdown, Captain Fingers. All right, y'all. That's our show for this week. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email address is Codeswitch at NPR.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Sammy Yenigan, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Walter Ray Watson produce this episode. This episode features music from Ellis DeHavilland, Jesse Saunders, Ron Trent, Mr. Lee, Frankie Knuckles, Underground Resistance, and Mr. Fingers. Big shout out to the rest of the Coach Witch fam, Leah Danella, cat Chow, Adrian Florido, Karen Greasby Bates. Our intern is Alele Mae welter This is our editor, Juleka Lantigua Williams last episode. She's off to do her own thing. Keep an eye out. I'm Gene Denby. Sharina's back next week, y'all. Be easy. y'all for listening to code switch have you heard up first the morning news podcast from npr when news moves fast it's the quick morning update on what happened and what you need to start the day wake up with up first tomorrow morning by 6 a.m eastern time on the npr one app and wherever you listen to podcasts